We are continuing in our series in the Gospel of Matthew this morning. Um, in Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 32, we're going to go through chapter 10, verse 15. Um, you know, before the service this morning, well, there's something that I started doing um, when we were doing the outdoor services and we had to move all that equipment every morning, is I started just wearing a, a t-shirt or sweatshirt to church and bringing whatever shirt I was going to wear because it was a lot of work and a lot of setup and all that, and I didn't want to get sweaty in, in the, the, my preaching shirt, you know? Um, and so I, I, still, I still did that today, even though we didn't have to do as much, still had to do a lot of stuff. So um, I did that, and, and then Ben saw me before the service, and he goes, uh, he goes, you don't look like you're ready for church. I said, well, no, I'm not Ben, but I, I will be. So I, I went and I changed. Uh, and that was the second time this week that someone criticized my clothing. <laughs> the first time was on Wednesday at Wednesday Club. I walked over to pick up the kids. And I'll say I was wearing a, a blue polo shirt. Nothing fancy or terribly ratty or anything. It was, just, it was, an, it was a pretty nice blue polo shirt. And this first grader walked up to me. And he goes, is that what you're going to wear to sing the songs? And I said, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I was going to. And he said, you should change. <laughs> he said, I like your other blue shirt better. Uh, man, everybody's a critic. Everybody's a critic. You know, Jesus had, and Jesus had critics. Uh, we call them the Pharisees. Not calling you a Pharisee, Ben. Not calling you a Pharisee. But we're going to start this morning with a section that I'm calling, But the Pharisees, because it's this phrase that is just repeated throughout uh, the Gospels. It's like, Everyone, was, everyone thought this was great, but the Pharisees. But the Pharisees thought something different. And so we're going to look at this first in verses 32 through 34 of chapter 9. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Now, we're not that far through Matthew. We're like almost halfway, but not quite uh, through Matthew. And you might be thinking like, boy, these miracles are getting kind of repetitive. Like we've already seen Jesus cast out demons. And then there's this, now there's another one here. Like we get it, right? He's, he's casting out demons. But recognize the fact that that, that this isn't even the totality of Jesus' miracles that we hear about in the Gospels. All of the Gospels only give us a sampling of Jesus' miracles. And many times, they'll give us a couple concrete examples, specific examples, and then they'll say, and then he did it much more. And then he kept healing people, or then he cast out more demons, and people brought, were brought to him. And it kind of gives us a summary of just, he kept doing more things. So what that tells us is that there's a reason that the gospel writers are highlighting these specific incidents. So there's a list of questions we can ask ourselves when we look at, okay, why is this miracle being highlighted? And in what way is it being highlighted? Some questions we can consider is, who is Jesus helping? Like, what are they like? Are they, is there something significant about who they are? Um, what is Jesus curing? Or is he casting out a demon? Is he curing leprosy? Is he curing blindness? How is Jesus doing it? You know, what method does he use? Does, sometimes he like wipes mud on people's faces, just sometimes he just says a word. 
Um, And then what is the reaction of the individual or individuals who are being healed or having demons cast out and the witnesses, the people that see it? It's going to kind of help us break down. So let's do it for this one. I'll give you an example. So who is Jesus helping? Uh, A demon-oppressed man who couldn't speak, right? Tells us this this man, he couldn't speak even though he had this demon that was oppressing him. Now, what that shows us is that, that, that demon, demonic possession can have a variety of effects, right? The last ones that we saw were in that cemetery, and they were so violent that no one could come through, and they speak to Jesus immediately. Here, this guy can't speak because of his demonic oppression, and there's no indication that he's a dangerous person. Then look at what is Jesus curing? Well, he's casting out demons, right? This says the added benefit of curing the man's muteness, but that's the core problem, right? So again, that kind of shows us it's not that he was born mute or that he had some physical problem where he couldn't speak. It was caused by this demonic oppression. How, uh, why is Jesus doing it? We don't really get specific evidence here, right? He's, he's doing it because presumably just to help the man. It's also giving further evidence to the disciples and to the crowds and to everybody that he has this power, that he has this authority, right? We didn't know, we don't know that for sure yet if we're just, if we're with the disciples and we're learning these things about Jesus. You know, somebody can do something one time and that's cool, but we don't know for sure that they can consistently do it. But here he's adding evidence to that. But aside from that, we don't get a lot of specific reason why he's doing this. Um, how is Jesus doing it? Notice, we don't know how, right? It just, it jumps straight to, and when the demon had been cast out. Doesn't tell us what he did, doesn't tell us, does he touch him, does he say something? We don't get any details on that. That's significant too, because it's showing us what is Matthew pointing us toward. Because Matthew could have told us that here's the specific way that Jesus cast the demon out, but he jumps straight to the past tense, Right, he jumps straight to when the demon had been cast out. Because he's showing us that's not the point of why he's bringing this up. And then what is the reaction of the individual and the witnesses? And we'll see here, we see here in this instance, that is the thing that Matthew is pointing us to, is what is the reaction. Because that's where the bulk of this story, that's where we get the most information here in this passage, is about the reaction. So that's the key to this the reason Jesus is telling this story and the, the reason Matthew is recounting this incident is to show us the reaction of the crowds and the Pharisees and specifically to contrast those things. So the crowds marveled. They'd never seen anything like this. And the Pharisees level an accusation, right? The, the Pharisees say he casts out demons by the, by, by Satan, essentially. He's saying the, the, this is how he's doing it is in this evil way. So why do they do that? Likely because they feel their position of power threatened, right? They're supposed to be the religious guys. They're supposed to be the guys who you have a problem, you come to them. They probably had brought this man to the Pharisees in the past, and they couldn't do anything about it. They probably found a way to blame the man or blame their family or blame his background somehow. There's a reason why we can't do this. So the fact that Jesus is able to do this, they have to find a way to discredit him because their own power is being threatened. And this is the problem that we have to 
to reckon with as well. When we see Jesus moving in the world, what will our reaction be? When Jesus moves in our life or in the life of somebody that we love, what is our reaction going to be? Are we going to be like the crowds and marvel and say, we've never seen anything like this. Isn't it wonderful? Or will we be like the Pharisees and find a reason to criticize it, find a reason to downplay it? We'll move on here, verses 35 through 38. Sheep without a shepherd And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So here, Matthew provides a summary of the kinds of things that Jesus did here at the beginning of his ministry, or that he went throughout all the cities and villages, and he did these three things. He taught in their synagogues. He would go into the synagogues and teach from the Old Testament scriptures. He already summarized for us what this would kind of sound like in Matthew 5 through 7, when the Sermon on the Mount gives us a kind of a summary of Jesus' teachings, the kind of things that he would teach, and there would be the same kind of things here, because all of that is him talking about the Old Testament scriptures. He's going back and, and, and interpreting it for them in a way that God would want, right? He's saying, this is what God meant. This is the heart behind these things. He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. Now, you might think, how can he proclaim the gospel before he dies and rises again? How is he proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom if the, what we think of as the gospel hasn't happened yet? Well, when he says the, the gospel of the kingdom, first of all, we always, anytime you see the word gospel, you can just translate it good news. It literally means good news. So he's saying that he, it, it didn't have the same, like when we, first of all, the whole word gospel is Old English, essentially. That's where we get that from. It means, it just means good news in Old English. Uh, we just brought it here and now we have specific meaning for it. But in the original reading of these scriptures, it would just mean good news. So the good news of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom is the good news of the, that the king has come. Or the good news of the kingdom at this point is that the Messiah has been born. For the Jews, this was the good news that the Messiah was here. They might not know exactly what he's going to do or the way he's going to accomplish and make all things right again, but the king has come, the Messiah has come, the Davidic covenant is going to be fulfilled. This king who is going to reign forever is here. That's the good news of the kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming is his own arrival. And then healing every disease and affliction. He's helping people in miraculous ways. He's helping people in miraculous ways. He's healing them. He's blessing them. And it says that he does this partly because when he saw the crowds, verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, that part, that if you really, I don't know, maybe this isn't true for you, but for me, that is kind of convicting. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. 
I, I can have compassion for crowds theoretically. I can have compassion for crowds in my mind. But when I see a crowd of people, I'm not usually compassionate. I'm usually like, ugh. Oh, these people, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know where they're going. Right? You know what I'm talking about? Does that resonate with anybody? Like, you don't, we don't like crowds. When you see the crowd, you, you go somewhere and it's crowded. I know it's been, I know it's been a while. Okay? But think back to before COVID. And you would go to, like, Costco on a Saturday. You have compassion for those people? Right? I, I, sorry, but there's part of me that, like, that's something i got to work on because I don't always have compassion for those people. You go somewhere where there's just, like, it's packed, it's crowded, everybody's ticking you off, right? That's not, your first reaction isn't like, these people are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, <laughs> right? That's probably not your first reaction. Maybe it is. Like, if it is, good job. But that's not my initial reaction. Jesus' reaction to seeing crowds who, by the way, want to ha- harass him. Like, if anything, Jesus, like, my expectation would be Jesus would be like, these crowds are harassing me. Because they're all coming because they want something from him. So imagine not, like, not, just, not just crowds, but like crowds that are there to get something from you. And that's Jesus' reaction is these people are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They're harassed because they're experiencing the effects of a broken world. Or they're experiencing disease, they're experiencing pain, trouble, demons. They're experiencing all the trouble that comes with living in a world that has rebelled against its creator God. And they're slaves to sin. They're harassed by their own by their own trouble, the own trouble that they make for themselves by their sin nature, which they're slaves to. They cannot but live by their sin nature. And they're helpless because there's nothing they can do to escape. There's nothing they can do to get out of this because they're stuck in the, in the brokenness that surrounds them. They're stuck dealing with other people's sin and stuck in their own sin. They, and they can't get out of it. They can't stop everybody else from hurting them and they can't stop from sinning as well. They're like sheep without a shepherd. And sheep without a shepherd are in danger, right? Because they're, they, they've, they've been bred and, and, and raised to need human protection. They have predators at night that they're harassed by. They have a hard time finding food and water on their own necessarily. Um, and they can't protect themselves, and he's saying these people are like sheep without a shepherd. They need, they need to return to their God. They need their God to protect them, to guide them, to provide for them, just like sheep need a shepherd. And he says the harvest is plentiful. He says, look, there's a great need. People are harassed and helpless. They're perishing. They're waiting to hear some, a message of hope. They need relief. The harvest is plentiful. As much as we might think, well, people don't seem to want the gospel. In reality, people are hurting. There is a need there that if they could only hear it, they could only understand it, this is what they would want. But the problem, so the problem, he says, is not that there is not enough people that need to be reached, not enough people that need to be helped. The problem is that the laborers are few. 
that there's not enough people to help them. There's not enough people to take the message of the gospel, the hope, the love, the compassion that Jesus has. There's not enough people to take that message to them. This was obviously true in Jesus' day, right? At this time, he's talking to 12 guys who are the only guys who are willing to go with him anywhere. They're willing to follow him, right? We talked about it last week. They're the guys that get in the boat when Jesus is like, let's go. They're the ones that actually get in the boat. The crowds stay on the shore. They're the only ones that are willing to go with him. There's literally not a lot of laborers then, but it remains true to this day because, <coughs> because there, are, there are still people who aren't willing to get in the boat. There are still people who aren't willing to actually go on mission with Jesus. Jesus continues to have a lot of fans, but not a lot of followers. A lot of people who are, are perfectly willing to come and hear about Jesus and worship him and, and have their own personal faith, but they're not willing to actually go on mission with him. They're not really actually willing to step out in faith and serve him and do what he wants them to do. The laborers remain few because even those who are fans of Jesus are not necessarily following him. This remains true to be the case. This is like, think of it this way, like you ever throw a party at your house, like you have a, a big party and, and, and you get all these people, you invite a bunch of people over, maybe it's like a you know, graduation's coming up, maybe you have a graduation party. That means like acquaintances and all kinds of people are gonna show up, It'd be a big party. Um, those are all your friends, right? Right? And, and you would say that they're your friends, but you find out who your real friends are at the end of the party. Right? The people that stick around and help you clean up, those are your real friends. In the same way, that's like there's a lot of people that are willing to come to Jesus' party. They're willing to come and enjoy and eat and drink and, and enjoy his benefits. But there's not a lot of people that are willing to stick around with him and clean up. But Jesus pro proposes an interesting solution to this problem. It's a, a solution that doesn't come naturally to me, right? He says, we have a problem. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. So y'all better get to work because like, there's only a few of us and we all have to do it. So we got we to gotta just dig in and we got to work harder. We're going to have to work extra hours. We're going to have to stay up late. We're going to have to get up early. We're going to have to do it, right? Isn't that what he says? No. It's, it's not what he says. He says, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few, therefore pray. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, send out laborers into his harvest. His solution to this problem is that the people that are already doing the work, by the way, should pray. Right? They, not that they should stop doing the work, but they should continue doing the work and pray for more people to come along. Not necessarily work themselves into the ground, burn themselves out, but to continue doing what he has called them to do and pray that he would send more people. Pray that he would, that he would send more people. We'll look at this last section here, verses 1 through 15 of chapter 10. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. 
The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals, or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. In whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town." Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. So Jesus, Matthew names the 12 disciples, and then he talks about Jesus sending them out on this kind of first mission. But it's a unique mission. This is a unique mission, um, and it's important that we know that. It's important that we look at this passage in context, because it's easy to look at a passage like this and determine that this is the way that all ministry ought to be done, right? If we looked at just this passage and said, okay, this is instruction for all ministry, then we would all go up to Bethy afterwards and say, I don't know why you're raising money. You don't need to bring a money bag at all. Just go, you know, just go. Just head out, and you don't need to prepare or or even bring any clothes. You don't need to pack, right? You don't need to have anything. That's what this passage tells us. So, but, that, but it's important that we recognize that this isn't the end of it because, uh, because Jesus actually amends these instructions at the Last Supper. He actually talks about this specific incident and revises and says, well, okay, here's how we're going to do things now. Here's what he says, Luke 22, 35 through 38. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. So we can see there, he, he specifically references this passage and then changes it. So, and I know a lot of you will be excited because there were weapons in that. Um, but notice, he says like, okay, you're going to need some swords. And then they find two swords. And Jesus is like, that's plenty. Two swords for 11 guys. So just saying. Like that's, I don't know. And then the first time they use the sword, like Peter, uh, this is way off topic, but, but the first time they used the sword like, was when Jesus is being betrayed and Judas is like, kisses Jesus and then the, the soldiers are going to haul him off and Peter's like, it's sword time! And he like grabs the sword and, he, and he's not good with it because he's not a swordsman and he chops the guy's ear off and Jesus is like, whoa, 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 and he puts it back on. So I don't know, I don't know. 
I, I just don't know how the, what to take from that. But in any case, they're packing. But let's look at Jesus' instructions here. Let's look at Jesus' instructions for this specific time because it's clear also from that passage at the Last Supper when he's amending these instructions, he's, he clearly wanted them to learn something from this experience. Right? He wanted them to learn. He says, when I sent you out that way, did you lack anything? And they're like, no. So he wants them to learn in this instance how to rely on him. So let's look at these instructions a little more in depth. Um, first, he says, only go to the Israelites, uh, which is another good reason that these were temporary instructions. Right? In other words, most of us wouldn't be here. But he says, only go to the Israelites. Why? Because the Israelites are God's chosen people. In Acts chapter 3, verses 25 through 26, it speaks to this, the idea that they were sent, they were sent to first. He says, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So this is Peter, and he's talking about the fact that, that God sent Jesus to the Jews first because they are his chosen people. He said, he sent the Messiah to you first. He was promised to you but God also made promises to Abraham that in, in Abraham's offspring, all the families of the earth would be blessed. So it's eventually going to have to go to everybody. But it, he was sent to the Jews first. So he said, here's what he tells them to do. He says, proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This should be an indication that the Messiah has come, right? The idea that the kingdom of heaven is at hand means the king has come. So the Messiah must have come. He tells them to essentially do miraculous good, is what I'm calling it, where he says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. This is to serve as evidence that what they're saying is true. Jesus already demonstrated this when he healed the paralytic, and he said, so that you will know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, pick up your mat and walk. He shows that his miraculous activity is meant to provide evidence for who he was, for the greater work that he can do. So he sends them out with the power to do this miraculous good, to give them evidence. And he also says, listen, this is going to be an unpaid internship. You're going to do it for free. You received for free, you give for free. <coughs> and essentially he's saying, listen, I don't give you these I don't give you this power so you can go out and make money. But can you imagine? They could make a killing. If you showed up in town and say, listen, any disease, we can wipe it out like that. And they could actually deliver. They could charge whatever they wanted. Right? They could have made a, made a killing. But he says, no, that's not the point. They've received everything from him for free. They should give it for free as well. And he says, again, no, and he says no provisions, right? They shouldn't prepare for their journey, no bag, no change of clothes, no money. He wants them to learn to rely on God's provision. And oftentimes, he'll do that with us, too. In our discipleship, he'll give us periods where we need to learn to rely on his provision. He may have done that in your life at some point. But even though he wants us to be prepared and to utilize the things that he's given us and even to save and prepare and, and those kind of things. He also wants us to ultimately trust in him for provision. 
And then he introduces this idea of a man of peace, right? He says, if you go to a house, see if you can find somewhere to stay. So this is what he's talking about just finding somewhere to stay. If they welcome you in, they offer you a place to sleep for the night, come in, let your peace rest on that house, share all these things with them, and let them, let them provide for you. That's essentially God's provision. They should stay with that person and rely on their hospitality. But if they're, if they're rejected in a town, they should essentially move on. He talks about them knocking the dust from their feet. Now, this was a sign of judgment, essentially. It really was a sign of judgment that God would judge that town. But notice that he essentially tells them, it's essentially a message of like, just keep moving. Listen, if you go to a town and they reject you, just keep moving. Knock the dust off your feet and keep moving. Because it's not for them to judge at this time, right? It's not for them to mete out judgment and consequence and punishment. He says, that time is coming, right? He says, in the end, it will be worse for that town than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah. But that's not for them to deal with. And that's something that's instructive for us as well, right? Because we're meant also to, to do similar things to what the disciples are called to do here, right? To take the gospel to the world. And oftentimes we are rejected, but so often we see in our day, we see Christians who take some message of truth and, and take the gospel to try to take it to people, and then they're rejected, and they go like, oh, so you want to fight about it, right? They go like, oh, we can argue this. I can debate this. Bring it. That's not, that's clearly not what Jesus wants us to do. He says, listen, if you're rejected, just keep moving. Keep moving. There's more people that need to hear it. We'll wrap up with this. How should we then live? Three takeaways for today's message today. Three things we can take because the Bible should always change us, should always affect how we think, how we live. Three takeaways. Number one, Respond with wonder to all that Jesus is doing rather than with the critical eye of the Pharisees. Right? Think about when, when you see God doing something in our world, how do you respond? Do you respond with criticism and skepticism or do you respond with wonder? Number two, ask God to allow you to see others the way he sees them. Think about that idea of Jesus seeing the crowds and having compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless. And, and think about, when, when are the times that are the hardest for you to feel that way? What are the times when you see human beings in a certain situation, sometimes it's in person, sometimes it's just on TV, sometimes it's just theoretical groups of people, and you go like, do I have the heart that Jesus has? Do I see them the way that Jesus sees them? Do I have compassion on them because they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd? Or do I condemn them? Do I look at them and think they're evil or they're terrible people? Or you know, how, What's my heart? Do I have the heart that Jesus had? And then ask God to change that. And then third, stay focused on the mission. Stay focused on the mission of taking the message of the kingdom, the message of the gospel, the truth, the love of Jesus to the world and not get distracted by so many other things. That's one of the cool things I think about Jesus' instruction to the disciples. It's, it's so focused. It's like, stay on this mission. Shake the dust off your feet. Stay focused on this mission. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to take communion together. You'll have a chance to prepare your hearts. If you didn't get elements, we'll have a couple of our ushers uh, walk down the aisles. They'll have some baskets with the little communion cups. And so just 
kind of signal to them if you need one, and they'd be happy to bring it over to you. Um, and then we'll come back and take communion together. Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, that we can worship you, that we can get into your word, that we can hear about how the, the amazing things you're doing in this world, from the, the Gideons to sending this group to, to Guatemala that Bethy's a part of. God, we want to be a part of your mission too. We want to be on mission with you. We want to have a heart of compassion for the world, a desire to see you move in our lives, in our communities. God, change us. Help us to see people the way that you see them. Help us to stay focused on the mission and to rejoice when we see you move. We pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.